The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kimberly McIntosh. Earlier this month, and to coincide with Black History Month, Jeremy Corbyn called for schoolchildren to be taught about the British Empire and the history and legacy of colonialism. To discuss the teaching of empire and migration in UK schools, I spoke to Kimberly McIntosh, co-author of the report Teaching Migration, Belonging and Empire in Secondary Schools, published by the Runnymede Trust. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Case for the Green New Deal by Anne Pettifor. What is the Green New Deal and how can we afford it? One of the seminal thinkers behind the US Green New Deal campaign, Anne Pettifor offers a roadmap for financial reform, both nationally and globally, taking the economy back from the 1%. The Case for the Green New Deal is a radical, urgent manifesto for change. Visit versobooks.com for more information. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Paul Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2, and by becoming a patron you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Kimberly McIntosh is the Senior Policy Officer at the Runnymede Trust and Race on the Agenda. Previously, Kimberly worked for the National Council for Voluntary Organisations as their Policy and Public Services Officer. I thought it might be worth starting on just the question of how much general knowledge about the British Empire and and migration there is amongst the UK population. I mean, in the report, you cite some pretty striking statistics on on how the empire is viewed. Um, I think in particular, there's that YouGov survey from 2014 that found that um, 59% of adults surveyed were proud of the British Empire. Could you speak a bit about what we know about public attitudes on these questions? We don't know an awful lot, actually, on public attitude in terms of the level of knowledge. Mm. So we have the infamous YouGov poll, which interestingly doesn't have a breakdown of how ethnic minorities feel towards empire, which I feel would show very different results in polling. But when it comes to how much do the public know, there hasn't actually really been much survey evidence or research. I think if we have a look at the public discourse, it would suggest that the level of knowledge isn't very high. What we do know is that um, the opportunities to learn about it formally at school is really varied and really wide. And there's a big area which needs more research because of the academization of schools. It's quite difficult to know 
what's happening in the classroom. Mm. So the only thing that we have a definite, definite stat on is that there's a particular module at GCSE called Migration to Britain, which also covers some empire too. And 4% of students who are taking history GCSE at the moment are taking that module. Am I right in thinking that history is not, it's not a mandatory subject, right? So that in itself is a self-selecting percentage. Yes, exactly. So there's only about 30% or so students who take, who are taking GCSEs, take history to GCSE level. So that's 4% of that 30%. So it's a really small self-selecting group. So if we wanted to make an intervention to try and increase that level of knowledge uh, formally within the curriculum, we need to start much earlier than that before people start dropping out of history as an option. I mean, I realise this is kind of outside the remit of the report, but what would your explanation be for why it is just so staggeringly low? Because, I mean, I, my expectations before reading the report would, was that it would be a low figure, but, but that is, you know, quite remarkable, really. So some of it is because it is a relatively new module. Um, so we've seen lots of different reforms and changes to the curriculum, um, which tend to be linked to whichever party is governing at the time. There's history teaching and what we choose to acknowledge and value is very political. So in 2014-15 we saw further changes to the curriculum and a new national curriculum that was strongly associated with Gove and as a result of that there was quite a restriction and constraints and a narrowing of what was taught and what was considered valuable knowledge and is influenced um, by one particular academic who is quite taken with the traditional canon that Gove was influenced by. But as a result of that, in 2016, the two of the three major exam boards, OCR and AQA, launched this new GCSE module. And they've been promoting it quite heavily and put a lot of resources behind it. And part of our work at the Renamee Trust was to create some resources that teachers could use to help them if they wanted to teach these modules and these topics more widely. But 2016 wasn't that long ago. So they've been doing outreach and they are trying to promote the modules. But the take up has been slower than they hoped, um, but not a want for trying. And some of that is due to structural constraints within schools. So teachers who maybe didn't learn about empire or migration themselves in school to then suddenly be teaching it and it might depend on the makeup of your classroom. Perhaps you're a white teacher, um, but you're teaching in a really ethnically diverse school, such as in South London, and you may or may not feel comfortable teaching something that not only have you never learned before, but has a lot of sensitivities around it. So that could be one barrier. There's also people wanting to do what they know already. So teachers are under really immense strain, um, resource pressures, and to take on a new module is a big risk. You don't know what the exam scores will be like. There's nothing to compare it to before. There might not be lesson plans drawn up but you might have lesson plans for health and people that you've been doing for 10 years. Maybe the school's been doing it for 15 years and you can just build on what's been done the year before. So it is, it can be quite challenging actually to try and get new topics to be taught more widely. And I mean, in terms of the willingness of teachers to engage in the topic, is there also an issue of the fact of empire, you know, even though it shouldn't be, it remains a contested issue as we see from the opinion polling. It's not you know, viewing the British Empire as in some ways a benign project is not limited to the far right. It, you know, it it's, uh, has a lot of traction 
amongst, you know, certainly amongst the Conservative Party in, in general, for instance. So is the fact that it is uh, seen as a contested topic in the way that, for instance, issues around, say, Nazi Germany, for instance, just, just aren't, do you think that also militates against teachers taking, taking it up? Yes, definitely. So we can only speak on what research has been done, but there have been some small studies. And one academic did find that he grouped teachers into three different groups. And one of them were teachers that he called them avoiders. So they just avoided topics that they felt were controversial. And then another group that Mm. um, might engage with them, but they wouldn't go into too much detail and they would kind of avoid teaching about the causes of this controversial issue. So if you don't feel comfortable or confident or perhaps even, you know, I don't want to overstate, but 59% of people who were surveyed saying they were proud of the British Empire, you know, some of those people have got to be teachers. And it's also a case of, say we forced every teacher to then begin teaching this in schools, if, if they believed that the empire was a force for good or something that they were proud of, it does beg the question of how they would then teach that material to their children in their classroom. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so I do think that there are the structural barriers, but there will also be people's personal attitudes and beliefs. And that goes actually the same for when pupils are being taught about these topics and obviously influenced by the beliefs that are being shared in the home. So there was another academic that did make clear that although most young people in his small study really embraced learning about migration and empire and thought it really helped them to understand the country we lived in and why we have ethnic diversity, who we are really, that one of the key determining factors of how they responded to the material were their preconceived ideas and values. And when I was at Manchester University, in our final year, we were doing an immigration module and I was doing my dissertation on it. And so a few of us were selected to do a workshop Um, with some local schools and on my table we were just talking about uh, you know we think of migration you know what do you think they're about 11 years old or so why would people want to move to Britain you know some kids were saying oh because um yeah we might have better jobs here um or you might want to study here and then one child said or for the NHS to use the NHS and you know if you're 11 or 12 um, it's unlikely that you've heard that anywhere else but potentially yeah, at home. Yeah, that's not just going to occur to you as an idea, is it? Yeah. No, like, oh, maybe that, that's a huge draw for migration. You, you've heard that from an adult. So yeah. there is also that dynamic will be happening in classrooms. So both for the pupils and the ideas they're getting outside of the home, but also teachers that might potentially hold those views are all things that we need to consider when we're thinking about how do we increase the level of knowledge around migration and empire in the most constructive but also factually accurate way. I mean does this raise the question of the necessity of embedding these kind of reforms in a broader project where you're also looking at media narratives for instance and the broader political discourse? Yeah definitely. I also think that the political discourse often influences (laughs) the changes that are the political agenda and the changes that are conceivable. Hmm. So we're doing a research project at the moment on framing and how race is talked about in the media and the political discourse. And politicians tend to be quite reactive to what they believe to be popular views. And equally, the media narratives that people are digesting every day are going to 
impact the way that they respond positively or negatively to the kind of work that we're doing. So I don't think that one can really be done without the other. I think we need to see that shift in media narratives that then enables us for our work to be able to fall better and to Mm. be understood better. But equally, if we want the political will to push education reform forward, if there seems to be a popular movement that's asking and calling for that, it's more likely that those changes will happen. We need to be trying to make both of those changes happen concurrently because one brings about the other. You mentioned the reform of the curriculum in, was it 2014 or 2015? I forget. Yeah, it kind of goes over. It starts in September 2014, but then it kind of rolls over into 2015. Right, yeah. The report talks about this backlash against multicultural texts. And so in the teaching of English, you know, it's returning to the traditional canon. It's Shakespeare, the mm. romantic poets, uh, the, the realist 19th century novel and, and so on. And I mean, in the sense that that's a backlash, I mean, how extensive was the teaching of multicultural texts? I mean, it's a while ago when I was a in secondary school but when I was at secondary school I mean I remember there was one novel we did Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart Mm. and there was nothing else and I I wonder sort of how extensive the teaching of other texts really was. So it really depends again on the school you were in there's so much chance related to what you're taught um, Mm. and how so I know when I was in school we did mostly traditional canon but my English teacher gave us all a list of books to read over the summer at GCSE level, and there were quite a lot of different texts on there that I guess could be branded as multicultural texts, um, Brick Lane, White Teeth, and reading them, like, yeah, did make mm. it, I did see myself in those books, and so it was really valuable for me. But that's completely at the discretion of the teacher, whether they find that of interest or see the importance of it or feel comfortable teaching it. And so we don't, what we don't have is that research that tells us what is going on in the classroom, what is happening and what is being taught in schools. And so it is something of a lottery. And it is likely, although I couldn't say for sure, but it's probably quite likely that if you are in a school which has a lot of ethnic diversity, that the teachers might be more inclined to teach those texts. Whereas if you're at a school that's all white in Cornwall, what is the probability that your teacher is going to make sure they include multicultural texts? Or are they going to go for something from the quote-unquote traditional canon. So we don't know the extent to which they were being taught before versus now, but what we do know is that teachers did speak out who were teaching such texts, saying the changes that you've made are going to make it more difficult for us to teach a range of work. Mm. So we know that the structural constraints intensified after those reforms, but the scale of which it limited what teachers can do comparatively to before, it is hard for us to say. We just need a huge research project with someone going out into schools and finding out and speaking to teachers and asking them. It is pretty remarkable that we don't have that research to hand, isn't it? And you've mentioned academies already, but the nature of the academy system seems to be making this even more opaque. And I also wonder, I mean, to what extent is the lack of teaching on the topic of empire migration is it just you know very much kind of justified on the basis that well we're giving autonomy to schools we're giving autonomy to teachers we're letting them do what they want to do rather than you know big government saying what people should be doing yeah it's definitely a very convenient excuse which is used and it's harder to 
to respond to because it is based on an element of truth. Mm. The curriculum does have flexibility and we do want to give teachers autonomy to be responsive to the needs of the children in their classrooms. But then what is not discussed is the changes to the curriculum make it more difficult to make choices outside of quite a homogenous group of texts or subject matter. So we have the illusion of more choice because we have the flexibility built in. But then when you're increasing pressure on teachers and reducing the resources that they have at their disposal, regardless of the choice that that there is on paper, in reality, it makes teachers more reliant on repeating the work that they've done in the past, trying to do things as quickly as possible, Mm. wanting to use the lesson plans from the year before. So you can quite easily invoke the defence of, well, we're making it easier for teachers, we're giving teachers more autonomy, whilst actually making it more difficult for them to exercise that autonomy. And then academy is an added barrier. So they're not under an obligation to follow the national curriculum. It just has to be a broad and balanced curriculum, whatever that means. And it makes it more difficult in terms of influencing or trying to implement changes, because then you'd have to target each academy chain and try and encourage them to either take up more teacher training for their academy chain that would give teachers more confident teaching these subjects or encouraging them to start teaching the GCSE module. But that breakup of the school system makes it much more difficult to bring about changes in that way. I mean, in terms of the consequences of the lack of teaching of these subjects, I mean, there's kind of the obvious consequence of students as they become adults as well will just be ignorant of these topics and that this will feed into racial stereotyping and so on. But what do you think, I mean, specifically, what do you think the impact is on BME pupils? I think the impact on BME pupils not being able to see themselves in the national story Mm. is a a really big one. I think the evidence of that isn't just like small scale research by academics, but also young people themselves. Um, Obviously, there are way more calls now to decolonise the curriculum, for example, although more at the university level, We've definitely seen with some of the groups that we've worked with and MPs that we've worked with that young people in their constituencies are running campaigns saying that they want to see this work Mm. being taught in their school curriculum, asking why is their curriculum white or why aren't they learning about empire? There's one particular group, Advocacy Academy, that trains a lot of young people in Lambeth. They've had two different groups of young people run this as their campaign. So the evidence is there that young people themselves are calling for empire migration to be taught as part of the curriculum. But there is also something about who we are as a country and what you learn from being able to be honest about the past and beyond slavery as well. So there has been some research that showed that young people, black young people particularly, wanted to feel um, like history lessons and school to give them a sense of pride, which makes sense if you are part of a group that is excluded in many ways, whether that's being formally excluded from school, which you're more likely to be, or from just not seeing yourself in literature or in history books, but also that when you are seeing yourself, it's often through the lens of slavery. Mm. So if there's nothing else on the curriculum that you can see yourself in but slavery, um, that isn't exactly conducive to feeling a sense of pride in yourself in your past. So you're either sort of invisibilised or put in the position of the victim and nothing else. Yeah, exactly. And particularly if that story isn't 
the way it's taught, if you're not taught about both enslavement but also slave rebellions, mm. then it can very much seem as if you're not ever an actor yeah. and you're always the subject, um, which is unhelpful for young people trying to build a sense of self-worth in a country that might not be giving them those signals in other ways. Mm. So I think that is really important to, also when we're thinking about expanding the curriculum, to have that wide range of stories. Black people have been in the UK before the slave trade and also after, but also much before Windrush docked in 1948. So I think it's telling a wider and more varied story that gives a more honest evaluation of how Britain became Britain as well as its relationships with the wider world. Yeah, I mean, on the conservative right, there's very much that sense, isn't there, that there's there's some kind of moment in history where Britain was white and that that was coincident with Britain's moment in the sun, so to speak. Yeah, and, you know, a third of the map was pink and that nostalgia for a past that never really existed, we're seeing that play out, not even just in political discourse, with political decision-making, very intertwined with the vote to leave the European Union and the narratives that have been used and are still being invoked that are extremely effective Mm. because that story is still really powerful and resonates with a lot of people that we won two world wars, we won a World Cup too, we're on the right side of things and we did that alone. And then anything post-1948 that involves people of some kind of aberration and people don't really understand why any of us are here in the first place. And I really believe that until that understanding is there, as well as the reality of what the world was like for colonised people, which was definitely absent in most previous iterations of the curriculum, even up to the 1960s, where empire was still taught kind of through rose-tinted glasses as a positive thing with little mention of the realities for the colonised. But I feel that until we engage at the national level in that conversation, in an honest way, without blame, but just with honesty, I don't see us getting very far in terms of fights for racial justice. I I actually don't think we can achieve racial justice until we've had that re-evaluation. In terms of the sort of shifting treatment of the empire, because it sort of feels like, you know, as you say, up until the 60s, people did learn about the empire, but they learn about the empire as, as this benign project, which was, you know, civilising the world and so on. But then it seems you sort of shift into this position where the empire becomes invisible. And it's, I mean, it seems particularly striking to me in the case of, of World War II, because it, the narrative that's presented, and it, and it continues, you know, right up to today in, you know, films like Dunkirk, for example, where you would think that it was the United Kingdom fighting the war rather than, you know, this enormous globe-spanning <laughs> empire, which was able to draw on, you know, millions of, uh, you know, huge numbers of, of imperial troops and, and resources, of course. Yeah, you see, it often happens in popular culture, definitely in textbooks, where you see mm. even the photos and sources used, what's missing and omitted and what's included, really reinforces that Britain stood alone um, in its darkest hour narrative. But there's also, there has been a kind of reclaiming a little bit of the narrative of contribution of people from various parts of the British Empire coming together during the First and Second World War, which is very true. But I think the concern is, is that then if we disrupt that narrative so that it is more truthful and more honest and honour people that throughout the British Empire don't get as much of a mention and did risk their lives, but we don't then engage with, say, the decolonisation process or 
the horrors and realities of imperialism, then we risk a different kind of amnesia and a different kind of forgetting where then we'll include ethnic minorities in story, but we'll still gloss over the parts that are hard. So we'll say that we all came together during the First and Second World War to defeat our shared enemies, but then we won't talk about the West Indian mutiny or how people who had been part of the Royal Air Force were treated when they docked from Jamaica and tried to make a life for themselves in the United Kingdom and Mm. what that was like. So I think it's really important to bring ethnic minorities into that narrative because they were there and talk about lives that were lost, but also to talk about the fact that they were treated differently or that there was a colour bar in the Royal Air Force that Churchill was a huge backer and supporter of until it became untenable to have such a colour bar and also claim to be fighting discrimination and genocide based on white supremacy, which is what was happening in Nazi Germany, that the hypocrisy there wouldn't stand up to scrutiny and that that was the only reason that Britain even removed its colour bar for the Air Force. We need that whole story. Otherwise, again, I think it's only partially helpful because I don't want to Mm. understate the importance of being included in the national story, but people fought hard for the race relations acts that we now have and we need to understand the reason why those acts were needed as well as the sacrifices that people made throughout the empire. I mean in terms of the recommendations of the report it draws on the teaching of of the holocaust in schools. I mean could you talk a little bit about that and to what extent how sort of close a parallel it is given that there are sort of these greater difficulties in talking about the empire because it you know obviously so profoundly conflicts with the the national self-perception. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to learn from the way that the Holocaust is taught, and particularly the institutions that support that teaching. So in the report, we talk a lot about the Centre for Holocaust Education at UCL, but there's also the Holocaust Educational Trust as well. And we do look particularly at the teacher training that they provide, because it's just really, really good. And Mm. it's highly rated by teachers who find it really useful. Teachers are taught how to teach an issue that is sensitive complex, harrowing. And so I think there is a lot to be learned from the way that they structure it. They do lots of CPD days for teachers and initial teacher education so that early on teachers are taught how to manage the issues. But there are limits to what we can learn from the Holocaust when we're thinking about teaching migration and empire. Because the Holocaust, Britain fought against Nazi Germany and it is always easier to reflect on times and learn from times in which we did the right thing. Although I think there's much more to be gained from reflecting on times when we failed at our values. But it does mean that I think that, while I know that there'll be more resistance to our calls for teaching migration and empire than there will be for the Holocaust, because learning about the horrors of the Holocaust doesn't force us to think about, yeah, the times when we failed when quote-unquote British values, if they are to mean support for democratic rights, for example, but Britain didn't have an empire which had fair democratic rights to the people that were colonised. So to try and complicate our national story in that way is going to come up against much more resistance than the teaching of the Holocaust. So I think there there are a lot of lessons to be learned, particularly for teacher training and materials and how we support teachers with that work but probably less so in how do we campaign for change how do we build a movement for this I think that's something that 
the teaching of the Holocaust in the UK, where that battle is different. Going back to that question of agency, does the teaching of the Holocaust, does that fall into the same problem of solely a sort of victims and perpetrators narrative? Or, or does it sort of look at things like the Warsaw Uprising and the partisan movement in Eastern Europe and so on in order to give that greater sense of Jewish agency in that situation that one might want to see, as you say, regarding the teaching of, of empire? Yeah, so that's something that the Centre for Holocaust Education um, do really emphasise, is that this isn't just a story about victims. And that's something that they make very clear and, yeah, really, really highlight. So I think that, again, is something that we can can definitely learn from when we're trying to expand the teaching of migration and empire, is teaching it in a way that highlights that agency. Yeah, that agency that people utilise to do incredible things to save to save themselves and to save each other and to resist. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.